Well, welcome everyone this morning. Glad to see everybody again. I, I know we got a few folks traveling and out doing various activities as they will in the summertime, but I'm glad those of you who are here can be with us this morning. Um, <clears throat> last week, uh, I mentioned I wanted to start uh, at least somewhat of a series as we get going here, uh, challenging us to look at the Old Testament. Uh, we know the Old Testament is a unfamiliar territory in some ways, and we'll, uh, we'll take a look at some characters and some figures of the Old Testament, and we're going to continue that this morning as we look at the story of Samuel. Samuel is one of these figures that kind of bridges the gap between uh, Moses and the stability under him that we might know real well, and then the United Kingdom under David and Solomon that we also would be familiar with. In between these two time periods, we have figures like Joshua and Gideon, Samson, the, the strong man Samson, and then, of course, Samuel, our focus today. Uh, be before our, our series concludes, I'm sure we'll look at a bunch of different parts of Samuel's life because he ends up being involved in a lot of monumental events in the Old Testament, like the anointing of David as a young king. Um, but, but this morning, we're actually going to start with the beginning of Samuel's life, at uh, his childhood, his, his sort of origin story, how he, his discovery of his role or his future and the work of the Lord. His, his origin story from the book of 1 Samuel is, is an inspiring one. It's a, it's a staple of middle school, high school Bible curriculum, and, and for good reason, right? It, it, it tells the story of a, a young man who, who's kind of in an apprenticeship of sorts in the temple who, uh, at a very young age, listens when the Lord calls him into his own work. It's a very inspiring story fit for that coming-of-age time period. And if you're like me, if, if you're someone who has ever, at a young age, considered working at a, working at a church in a future capacity, uh, the story resonates, right? To listen when God calls you. You, you kind of you take away that immediately obvious sort of traditional message. We should be ready and willing when the Lord calls us. When I read Samuel now, I, I also kind of think of, well, what about everyone else? Ephesians 4.11 does say that, you know, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints and the work of the ministry. So we, we recognize that everyone plays some role in the church. The reality is not everyone is called to be prophets the way Samuel was. Not everyone is called to be some sort of mouthpiece or a messenger of God's word. I just think of our, our congregation here, for example. We, we've had the blessing of hearing a, a handful of different people speak, some from our own congregation, some from other nearby congregations. But the majority of us often find ourselves in the position of listening to a message rather than delivering one. And, and truthfully, I think smaller congregations like ours are, are probably in a better situation than larger congregations from a numbers standpoint on that. I mean, there's some churches that have hundreds if not thousands of people uh, listening to the same, you know, maybe handful of people speak. But either way, a large majority of Christians, I think, can find themselves maybe not relating to Samuel because you've never felt called into the work of, uh, of working for God as a speaker or a prophet or a messenger for the Lord. So again, I ask the question, what about everyone else? When we look at the text in 1 Samuel, we'll see Samuel, rather obviously, is the main character of the story, Right? But he's surrounded by influences, influences both positive and negative, that shaped who he was, that, that put him in a position that he found himself in. 
So this morning, as we study the story of Samuel, I want us to focus not just on Samuel, but on those around him. Because really, the story of Samuel doesn't happen without some of the figures that we're going to look at this morning. So I want us to look at the, I guess as I've said it, the, the everybody else. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to the book of First Samuel. Um, the, the book of Samuel opens with, as I said, the background of Samuel's birth. Uh, Samuel was not exactly an ordinary child with ordinary parents. Uh, his mother, Hannah, was one of the two wives of an Israelite man named Elkanah. And we learn a little about them uh, in chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 4. In chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, in verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. In ancient civilizations, and sadly in many parts of the world today, a huge part uh, of a woman's value is tied to her ability to bear children. And I know to, to some of you I'm not really telling you anything you might not already have heard from various people or various places. Um, if anything, it's a topic I'm the least qualified to speak on, truthfully. But um, in these civilizations, that was the case. And, and it's in a sad way that they're reduced to their biological capacity to bring children into the world. And so... Although Hannah, who would be Samuel's mother, she, she tries very hard to view herself as significant and, she, and to, to find value in herself apart from this, the text tells us that, that other women in the family mocked her. And that year after year, this, this teasing and mocking continued. And, and year after year, she would, she would go up to the house of the Lord and she would pray and she would weep bitterly because the Lord had closed her womb. Look at, look at verse 10 of the chapter. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She couldn't pretend that she wasn't bothered by the things people said. She couldn't help how it, how it made her feel. But there was something she could do. She decided she could pray. She continued to pray and continued to seek God even while she wept, even while she was distressed. And she decided not to be deterred by those voices that were around her. Samuel's mother was, was not a prophet. She was not chosen to be a, a mouthpiece for God or for the Israelites. But she could still pray. She could still worship God faithfully. She could still pray to God, continue to put her faith in God, still commit to God in spite of what was happening around her. And we see these qualities of, of faith and commitment later reflected in her son, Samuel. But before Samuel even entered into the world... It was her faith and her commitment that made Samuel's very existence possible. As the, as the story continues to unfold, Hannah crosses path with the Israelite priest Eli. Eli tells her that her prayers have been heard by God and that she will bear a child. And so in keeping with her vow that she made, she, she names her child Samuel, meaning I have asked of him from God. And at a very young age, she gives him to the work of the Lord at the temple. Samuel's mother showed perseverance, commitment, most of all faith. And for these qualities, she was rewarded. For these qualities, great works of God that she could not have even thought of were possible 
through her son. Samuel does not exist without his mother's faith and his mother's commitment. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we're introduced to some other characters in the story. Two men who, who could not be more different from Samuel's mother. Uh, in fact, when the text introduces them, it wastes no time telling them, telling us what kind of people they are. Look over at Samuel chapter 2, look down at verse 12. In fact, the, the heading in my Bible, even in the top of verse 12, says, Eli's worthless sons. <laughs> verse 12 of the chapter says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Other translations even say they were wicked or corrupt instead of worthless, or that they did not respect the Lord. They had no regard for the Lord. But however phrased, it is very clear what kind of sons they, they were, what kind of men they were. And I want us to understand that Eli and his sons belonged to this, this family, that, that dating back to the time of Moses and of Aaron, uh, the, the nation of Israel was divided into 12 tribes. I'm sure we've heard that expression before. But one of the tribes was called the Levites. And the Levites were responsible uh, for being the priestly tribe. This meant they, they kept up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. They would prepare sacrifices. They would do kind of the, the legwork that made the sacrifice and the worship and the, the rituals that took place in the temple, like the burning of incense. They would do the legwork that made these kind of things possible. They were responsible for the, the cleansing, the sacrifice, and the assist and the worship of God. They had certain judicial or educational responsibilities as well. And of course, in exchange for these duties, they would receive a portion of the tithe. And that's where some of that originates. But this dated back for a very long time in Israelite history. And, and an important thing to note is that this priesthood is by blood. Um, it, it was only inherited. One could not become a Levitical priest if they were not a son of Levi, if they weren't a part of the right family. So even though you couldn't necessarily control this, more was expected of those who were born into sort of this, this right family. The text tells us that Eli's sons took advantage of their position. They took advantage of their, what little authority they were given. They took advantage of their priestly status. They would demand more than just the normal tithe that was commanded by the law. And if they did not receive what they wanted, they would take it. By force, the text says. People were very scared of them. I don't think f striking fear is not a, not a quality you want in someone who is to be a priest or to be a priestly figure. If we look over at verse 17 of chapter 2, in verse 17 it says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel's mother, it seems, like was, was, very, was given very little in terms of what she wanted in life. And when she finally received it, she turned it over to God and said, This is for you. I'm so grateful for what you've finally given me that I'm actually going to turn around and give it back to the, to the Lord. Eli's sons, meanwhile, uh, through their birth, were really blessed with great privilege, great honor. And rather than work for the Lord, they instead use that privilege and use that honor for selfish gain. When I read this, this section, one, I think of us, and, I, and not just specifically this, this congregation, but I think of really Christians in America as a whole. 
Whether we realize it or not, when we look at this idea of wealth or money from a global perspective, all of us have been blessed very greatly to be born here. And kind of like Eli's sons and this Levitical priesthood, we didn't really earn it. We, we Sure, we might have done great things with what we have earned. We might have earned other things in our life. I'm not trying to take away from that. But the truth is, I, at least I know I, uh, had zero influence over when I was born or where. It's probably true for, for all of us. So we were, we were blessed with being born at the right time and in the right place. And the important question for us is what do we do with that? What do we make of what the Lord has already given to us? I also think about this question not, not just in the context of wealth, but also spirituality in kind of a loose sense. Some of us may have been blessed to be born to very devout, involved, faithful Christian families. Maybe we had all the right things lined up for us growing up, or we had all the, you know, a good church family, and we're surrounded by good teachers and good mentors. But at a certain point, our salvation becomes about ourselves. So what do we do with it? We were blessed to have all these resources, and because of our birth, blessed to be surrounded by all the right things. But what do we, what do, we do with that? Did we obey the gospel and conduct ourselves in such a way that we lead others to Christ? Or like Eli's sons, did we squander what was given to us? Later on in the chapter, the, the Lord speaks directly to these sons and he condemns them for what they've done. Look over at verse 29. He says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? The Lord actually goes on and almost a not quite a rant, but a, uh, a tongue lashing, we might say. He had a, I guess we'd call it a come to Jesus meeting, but that'd be a little bit out of timeline here. Um, has harsh words for the sons of Eli, certainly. God does not take kindly to those scorning worship, to those scorning the offering that he has given them. It says they let selfish desires get in the way of a divine opportunity and God says you know what fine look down at verse 35 of chapter 2 in verse 35 he says and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed Forever, And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. The Lord says, You want to waste this opportunity? You want to squander the blessings I've given to you? I can give them to somebody else. The things I have planned for you and the things that I have purposed you for, I can take away that purpose, and I can give it to somebody else. And he even says, I can take away so much that they will do so well with what I was going to give you that your, your descendants will come to them just begging to do what you have wasted just so that they can eat. 
when we look at the example of Samuel's mother, we should be encouraged to bring up our own children in service to God and in faithfulness to God and recognize the, the impact a parent can have on their child's faith. But I think Eli's sons serve as a cautionary tale. There is a responsibility that is given to some extent to all of us. There is a, a work or a mission or a purpose that God has called us to. But if we shirk that responsibility or that duty that we are called to, he, uh, if we ignore what needs to be done, if we mock the blessings that we've been given as Eli's sons did, he can take those blessings. As the expression goes, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. We don't want to be someone the Lord has cast aside, like Eli's sons here in the text. In a strange way, though a negative influence, it is the failure of Eli's sons that allows Samuel to succeed. If Eli's sons had actually succeeded in the purpose that was given to them, there wouldn't be a need for someone like Samuel, for an outsider, for somebody else to come in and then take advantage of that opportunity. But because of their failure, someone else was allowed to succeed. The first influence of Samuel's mother is someone we should mimic, but really... This second influence is someone we don't want to be like. We don't want to be somebody the Lord has cast aside to say, you know what, I'm going to let somebody else do what I've called you to do. The last influence I want us to notice from this section is, is Eli himself, the priest. Unlike his sons, Eli is very dedicated to the work of the Lord, to the responsibility that was given to him from his birth. He didn't settle with what was given to him. He, his sons thought it was good enough just to be born in the right place or born to the right family or to be of the right lineage. But Eli recognizes that actual service to God is so much more than being born at the right place in the right time. I want to read another section, this time from chapter 3. Um, and as I said in the beginning, if we've, if we've read this story before and as we get deeper into it, I think it will become familiar. Uh, I want us not just to look at Samuel's actions, but as, uh, the book is named after him. After all, he is probably the main figure. But look at how Eli handles this powerful interaction we're about to read, because it's a very unique situation. I want us to notice how Eli the priest handles it. Look over at chapter 3, and we'll begin reading from verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you have called me. But he said, I, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, 
Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. When I read this section and I think about Eli, this, this aging priest whose sons have already been rejected very recently by the God, I, I, I think it would be easy for Eli to be jealous of Samuel. Not only for the sake of his sons who quite recently has been rejected by God, but for himself. When the chapter starts, it says the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. That there was not a vision. Imagine being a priest in this time. You're following the footsteps of great men in Israelite history like Aaron and Moses who have done great powerful signs and wonders in front of the people on behalf of, of God. Men who talked to God often and had long conversations like you would a close friend. And you live at a time where presumably through no fault of your own, God remains silent or mostly silent. I think that silence, especially when contrasted with such powerful works just a little earlier, could cause one to wrestle with their own faith. His sons being cast out could even cause someone to be angry, for them to be robbed of what, might have been, uh, what he might have thought they earned. But that's not how Eli handles the situation. Eli is old enough to have grown adult sons and has spent most of his life serving in the temple, hearing nothing from the Lord. And then one night, Samuel, this young boy, young enough that it says he did not, the word of God had not yet been revealed to him, he hears God calling him. I think it would be easy for Eli to be very jealous, if not angry, about this exchange, about the way this unfolded for him. But he shows not just a, a patience, but a, a very nurturing sort of kindness. And really, I maybe step back a little bit and just, just look at the, the pragmatic reality of the situation. Um, if you wake me up three times in the middle of the night, I'm not responding the same way. <laughs> Once, I can forgive. Two or three times, we're going to have a problem. Um, it reminds me of being a, a kid and, and having bad dreams. It just seemed like I'd, I was plagued with night terrors as a really young boy. And I remember, you know, waking up and you go to your parents and you're crying. It's like, oh, I had a bad dream. What do I do? And they're like, go lay down. And you're like, okay. I can only imagine being a young child and waking my dad up, not once, not twice, but three times in the dead of night. Uh, I love my dad. I'm not sure he would handle it the same way Eli the priest does in this section. And as a prospective dad myself, I'm not sure I blame him. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, Eli is this wonderful father figure and mentor to Samuel. In this short but important exchange with his age and his, his wisdom, he says, you know, I think something special is happening here. I think God is calling you, and here's what you need to do. I think it's one thing for a teacher or a coach or a mentor to recognize when someone has a gift, let alone a gift they themselves don't have. But it's another to be able to say, you know what, here's how you use that gift. 
Here's what you need to do. Let me set you up so that you can succeed. The book of Samuel is, is about so many people other than Samuel. In fact, spoiler alert, there's two books, First and Second Samuel. Samuel dies, like not even before the first one is finished. It's about a lot of other people. But even his origin story, even this, this exchange where he becomes called to be a prophet of God, there's so many key people around Samuel that God uses. His mother, who perseveres through tearful struggles and, and hardships, who holds fast to her faith in the Lord. Eli, whose own, whose own biological sons were, were rejected by God, who takes Samuel under his wing and encourages him, mentors him throughout his life. Though not called himself, he was ready to support Samuel. And then, of course, there's Eli's two sons. Because, yes, even those who disobeyed God were ultimately used for his purpose. It was through their failure that God gave opportunity to somebody else. If we're listening, God will give us great opportunities to do great things for him. He will give us great opportunities to do great things with our own lives, but also to support, to help, to, to nurture, to assist, to mentor the lives of others. When that opportunity calls, don't ignore it. God gives all of us an opportunity, maybe to be a Samuel, to be a messenger on his behalf, to be a teacher, to be a prophet, as, first, uh, as Ephesians 4.11 says. But maybe it's to be a, a nurturing mother. Maybe it's to be an aging mentor to a younger person who might have a gift that you don't have. But when that comes, don't let that opportunity pass you by. Encourage someone. Look for someone who shows signs of those gifts. Who shows signs of the Lord calling them to something in their life. Don't be Eli's sons. Don't be someone the Lord casts aside and says, I'm, I'm going to take these blessings and this purpose that I was going to give to you, and I'm going to use somebody else. If you're with us this morning and there's a... Uh, is there anything you need? If there's something we can do for you, now is the time to let that be known.